Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are introducing a new Friday series with James Jordan, and that series is going to walk through the book of Haggai, and here he is going to give an introduction to the book. Do be sure to take a look at those links down there in the show notes. We still have a couple of days left to accept registrations for our upcoming course on Jane Austen. That'll be an online course that'll run for six weeks on Saturdays. So for more information about that, there's a link down there in the show notes. Also, if you have not yet subscribed to the Theopolis app, we encourage you to do so. In the next week, the entire Paul course, the Pauline Theology course that Peter Lightheart taught this spring, will be there on that app, both in video and audio form. So you'll want to subscribe to be able to take advantage of listening through that course with Lightheart. As always, we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan giving an introduction to the book of Haggai. Haggai means my feast, and the prophecies of Haggai all have to do with feasts and festivals which were either then present or shortly to arise in Israel. The first prophecy occurs on the new moon, which was a monthly festival, and the second prophecy occurs at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, and the third and fourth prophecies both occur on December 24th. The next day after that was going to be the Feast of Hanukkah, or Lights, and all of these things had to do with the building of the temple and come over into Christianity as Christmas or the festival of the Incarnation where the true temple of God was born into the world. So there are festival connections throughout the book of Haggai. Haggai means, as I said, my feast. Hebrew for feast is hag, H-A-G, and the A-I, the doubling of the G, and then the A-I are the word for my, my feast. This morning we'll consider the first chapter of Haggai, and start with, let's read it together. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell on your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, and on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared before the Lord. Then Haggai, messenger of the Lord, 
spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the twenty-fourth day of the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Now, for I think most of you this is not terribly familiar circumstances in the Bible, and I think it would help us to turn back to the book of Ezra, which gives the historical background. Ezra is regarded as one of the historical books, or one of the early prophets more accurately, and comes after Chronicles. Now the situation was this. The Jews, because of their sin, had been captured by the Babylonians earlier. The northern kingdom had been captured by the Assyrians, and all had been taken off to the east to dwell in a land of bondage. Now, however, the disciplinary period was over of 70 years, and the people were allowed to return. And they were to get about their first work, and the first work of the church is to build the house of God. What that means, we'll have to look at in a few minutes. But the book of Ezra gives us the historical background to Nehemiah. And I think if we read the first four or five chapters together selectively, we'll come to have an understanding of what's going on. But this is after the Babylonian captivity, after the kingdom has come to an end. God has judged Israel and taken them off into these foreign lands, but now they're allowed to return. And Ezra begins, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdoms, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, arose even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, and with valuables, aside from all that which was given as a freewill offering. Also King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem, and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Sheshbazar is Zerubbabel. Sheshbazar is his Babylonian name, and Zerubbabel is his Hebrew name. You remember that Daniel was given the Babylonian name Belteshazzar. And so a lot of these people have double names. Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah here, is the same as Zerubbabel. Now, this was their number, 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls of the second kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400. Shesh Bazar, Zerubbabel, brought them all up with the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, these are the people of the province who came out of the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city. These came with Zerubbabel. Jeshua, 
The first name here, Jeshua, is the same as Joshua, the high priest. Jeshua, Joshua, Yeshua, Yahshua, Jesus, those are all the same word. And this Jeshua is Joshua, the high priest. These came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, not the Nehemiah we're used to, but another man, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Baana. And then there's a whole list of other people who came. Before we go further, let's take just a look at the theology of the book of Ezra here, because it's very important to understanding Haggai. You'll notice that it says in chapter 2, verse 1, these are the people of the province who came out of the captivity of the exiles. Now that captivity corresponds to the bondage in Egypt. And when the people came out of Egypt, they came with gold and much spoil, and they went and the first thing they did was they had a worship service at Mount Sinai. And with the gold and silver that they got from Egypt, they built two things. The first thing they built was a golden calf to express idolatrous worship. And then the second thing they built after God destroyed the golden calf was the house of God, the tabernacle. So you have a sequence of events, bondage in Egypt, deliverance with great spoil, and the spoil goes to build the house of God when the Lord stirs up the spirit of the people to build the house of God. And that's the way Ezra is written is to call attention to that. For instance, in verse 6 of chapter 1, And all those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, with valuables, aside from all that was given as a free will offering. Remember how in Egypt the Jews went and asked gifts of the Egyptians. And the Egyptians gave them all these prizes and articles of gold and jewelry and whatnot as a bribe. See, the Egyptian people were terrified of all the plagues. And they figured that if they would give some gifts to this Yahweh, this God of Israel, that he might spare them. And so they were very happy to give a lot of gifts and presents to the Israelites. And here, parallel to that, the same event happening a second time in the providence of God. All this spoil is given by the Babylonians and the other nationalities to rebuild the house of God. No, not out of fear in this case, but there are parallels. And we'll see in the book of Haggai even further parallels. And so there is a model which is being repeated, a model of God's people getting gold and silver and whatnot from the nations and from the pagans and using it to build the house of God, which is to be, according to Jeremiah, a house of prayer for all the nations. Now, in Ezra chapter 2, there is this long list of all the people who came. And without in any way wanting to despise the word of God this morning, I think that to save time, we won't read all these names. But let's look, first of all, at the way the chapter is broken up, because that is significant for our purposes. Uh, God includes all these names in order to honor those who are willing to come back and be part of the remnant. Their names are recorded in the word of God. Those who are faithful to God and who follow him and who build his house, their names are recorded in the book of God. Generally speaking, that's the teaching of this passage, the enrollment of the saints in the book of God. You and I, if we're faithful to God, our names are enrolled, and on the day of judgment, our names will be read just as we could take the time now to read all these names of faithful people in the past. But first of all, there are a whole lot of just general people who came back, and they're listed in the first 35 verses. And then in verse 36, special mention is made of the priests who came. And in verse 40, the Levites. And verse 41, the singers. And verse 42, the gatekeepers. And verse 43, the temple servants. 
or slaves, the descendants of the foreigners who were taken in as slaves or servants of the temple. And then in verse 55, the sons of Solomon's servants or slaves. And verse 58, all the temples and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. And then more things are said about the people who came. Before we look at that, then I want you to notice that the people are categorized preeminently in terms of their position with respect to the temple or the house of God. That's the important thing here. Who came back and who was connected with the temple of God and the house of God? There's a centrality to the temple and to the function of worship in the presence of God. That is central here, not cultural matters. And that's the message of the book of Haggai, and that's the message for us uh, as we consider this together. Look at verse 59 now. Let's continue with Ezra 2. Now there are those who came up from Telmalah, Telharsha, Cherub, Adan, and Emmer. But they were not able to give evidence of their father's households and their ancestry, whether they were of Israel. And the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 652. And of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the son of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and he was called by their name. These searched among their ancestral registration, but they could not be located. Therefore they were considered unclean and were excluded from the priesthood. And the governor said to them that they should not eat from the most holy things until a priest stood up with Urim and Thummim. Now, those of you who have been with us for a while, remember what the Urim and Thummim were. They were two flat stones which looked like the two tablets of the law. And just as the two tablets of the law were kept in a box inside the tabernacle, so the two flat stones were kept in a box on the garments of the high priest. And there's a correspondence between these two architectural models. And just as in order to find out the will of God, you would go and consult the two tablets of the law kept in that box in the ark, so in order to know the will of God, you would take these two flat stones out of the box in the high priest's chest and toss them on the ground and they would give a yes or no answer. And so what's being said here is in time to come, once the priest takes up with Urim and Thummim again, we'll be able to tell whether these men are true priests and true descendants of Aaron or not. But until that time, uh, we don't have any way of finding out from the Lord exactly their standing. But once the Urim and Thummim would have been taken up with, then a man would stand before the priest and ask, the priest would ask the Lord, is this man a descendant of Aaron? Should he be considered clean and allowed to exercise the priesthood or not? And then the Urim and Thummim would be cast as lots upon the ground and they would give a yes or a no answer depending on how they fell. 64. The whole assembly numbered 42,360, beside their male and female servants who numbered 7,337, and they had 200 singing men and women. Notice the importance throughout the passage of singing and the exercises, the liturgical exercises of worship. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. And some of the heads of fathers' households, when they arrived at the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered willingly for the house of God to restore it on its foundation. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas and 5,000 silver minas and 100 priestly garments. Now the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their cities and all Israel in their cities. By the way, these gatekeepers seem to have been stationed at the door of the temple to prevent unclean people from coming in. 
It's a way of hedging the table in the Old Testament. Just as now in our day, if someone is here who cannot profess faith in Christ, who has not been baptized, and who is not under the discipline of the church, the elders will not permit him to come to the Lord's table, him or her, until they have squared away their relationship to the visible church. And so the elders are our gatekeepers or overseers. Uh, possibly it would be a good idea for them to stand at the door and greet people as they come in and thus visibly and symbolically act as keepers of the gate. But this seems to have been what the gatekeepers were and is a very important function in the Old Testament and in the church today. Now, when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in their cities. The people gathered together as one man in Jerusalem. Now, that's because in the seventh month you have the... Day of Atonement, and then the Feast of Tabernacles, which is very important to the book of Haggai, and we'll look at it in more detail later on. Then Jeshua, or Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, here it's written Jehozadak, and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation even though they were terrified because of the peoples of the land. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. That was according to the law, a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. And they celebrated the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily according to the ordinance as each day required. You may not remember this, but on the first day you were to offer 13 bulls, on the second day, you offered 12 bulls. On the third day, you offered 11 bulls, 10, 9, 8, 7, and 6, the total of which was 70 bulls for the 70 nations of the world. And so again, we see Israel mediating between God and the nations, an important idea which we'll return to as we consider the book of Haggai in more detail. The Feast of Booths. And afterward, verse 5, there was continual burnt offering also for the new moons and for all the fixed festivals of the Lord, Passover, Pentecost, and the other fixed festivals that were consecrated, and from everyone who offered a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Get that straight now. The altar of burnt offering was set up, and they were offering sacrifices on the altar. But the house itself was not built. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters, and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians, to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa, according to the decree they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, and all the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who came from captivity to Jerusalem, began the work and appointed the Levites from twenty years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. This is all in accordance with the law. Then Joshua, with his sons and brothers, stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, the royal tribe, and the sons of Henadad, with their sons and brothers, the Levites, to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. 
Now, there's notice made of those directions in 1 Chronicles 28.19. 1 Chronicles 28.19. And that's where David gives the plan of the temple to Solomon. And in 1 Chronicles 28.19, David says, All of this the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the details of this pattern. And so... You should understand that just as God told Moses exactly how to build the tabernacle, so God told David, and David wrote down exactly how to build the temple. David didn't make up the plans for the temple. They were dictated to him by God. And along with God told him how the music was to be organized, and that's where the book of Psalms comes from, so forth. Verse 11, And they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good and his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And that's the refrain in a number of the Psalms, as you know. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and the heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy. So that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's households and said to them, Let us build along with you, for we like you seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' households of Israel said to them, You've nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, who are these people of the land? Well, when the northern kingdom was taken into captivity, the Assyrian Empire took almost all of the Israelites out into Assyria where they supposedly disappeared. Now, actually, they just lived in Assyria, and then when the Babylonians took over Assyria, they lived in Babylon, and when the Jews returned from Babylon to Israel, many of their descendants came back. They weren't completely lost, nor are there ten lost tribes, nor are the gypsies the ten lost tribes, nor are the North American Indians the ten lost tribes. No, none of that. The New Testament makes it plain that there were descendants from all twelve tribes living in Israel at that time, and so the ten lost tribes were never lost. They were in captivity, and then later on the southern kingdom was conquered by Babylon, and Jews were taken and joined their brothers already living to the east. But the Assyrians, when they pulled the Jews out of Palestine, moved other peoples in. And these people intermarried with the poorest among the Israelites who were left in the land, and they became the Samaritans. And the Samaritans were half-breeds with paganism, and they had a half-breed religion. They worshipped the Lord, but they also served the gods that they brought with them from their culture. So you might have Armenians or Mesopotamians or who knows what else living in Palestine, offering sacrifices to Yahweh, God of Israel, because after all, he was the God of the land and we better placate him, but also offering sacrifices to their own national tribal gods because they wanted to stay on their good side as well. And because the Jews here are true believers and they want to remain loyal to the Lord and not have any compromise and any mixture 
what in theology is called syncretism. Syncretism is a mixture of Christianity with paganism. They want none of that. They don't allow these people to join with them in building the house of the Lord lest they corrupt it. Now, these people worked very hard to prevent the house of the Lord from being built, and they succeeded in stopping it. And the rest of chapter 4 gives a detail of how that was brought to pass, and there's really not much point in going into it. They got the king of Persia to put a stop to it by telling lies. And so in verse 24 of chapter 4 of Ezra, it says, Then work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia, when the prophets Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo, author of the book of Zechariah, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Jehozadak arose and began to rebuild the house of God which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At that time, Tatani, the governor of the province beyond the river, that's the name of the province, by the way, beyond the river. We live in Texas. They lived in beyond the river. And Shethar Barzani and their colleagues came to them and spoke to them thus, who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and finish this structure? Then we told them, by this time Ezra has moved into the community, then we told them accordingly what the names of the men were who were reconstructing this building. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until a report should come to Darius, Darius and then a written reply be returned concerning it. Now, the next chapter and a half, tells how letters were sent back and forth to Darius, and Darius said, yes, build the temple. And so everything was settled, and the temple was built. But now we have a context for the book of Haggai. They have had to stop working on the temple. Seventeen years have gone by, and during those 17 years, people have begun working on other projects. But now the opportunity presents itself to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, why is that? Well, because Darius has become king. The previous king had stopped work on the house, but when there's a change of king, they can always appeal the matter again. And now that the king has changed, and Darius is now king or emperor of Persia, they can appeal to him for permission to start building again, and they can start building again. In fact, they could go ahead and start and then make their appeal later on, which is what they did. Now, a year and a half has gone by, or at least a year, and nothing has been done. And the Lord has cursed the land with drought and all these other things that are mentioned here in Haggai chapter 1. And so then the prophet Haggai is stirred up to call them back to the work of building the house of the Lord. So let's turn back to Haggai and consider chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, as I mentioned to you, on the first day of each month there was what was called a new moon festival. The months were not organized the way ours are. Their months were 28 days long. So that the first day of each month corresponded with the new moon. Then there were some extra days at the end of the year stuck in to round out the year. As most of you know, I'm sure, 12 lunar months does not equal one year of 365 days. The moon doesn't go around the earth in the same period of time as the earth goes around the sun. So adjustments have to be made in the calendar. Now, our months are of varying length in order to accommodate that, but their months were all 28 days long. 
so that the new moon came on the first. And each new moon, each beginning of a month, there was a new moon festival. And on that day, a larger than ordinary sacrifice was offered, and the people gathered for worship. Now, we know, contrary to the opinions of some, that the people gathered for worship every Sabbath day during the Old Testament period. Now, if you don't believe that, you should look at Leviticus 23. In fact, why don't we just turn back there for a second and clear this matter up because it becomes important later on. Leviticus 23. The Lord spoke again to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times which you shall proclaim as holy convocations. Holy convocations. A convocation is an assembly of people. Convocate means to call together. Still means that in English. And so a holy convocation is a sacred assembly for worship or instruction. You shall proclaim as holy convocations. My appointed times are these. Verse 3. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. Now, a lot of people are under the impression that during the Old Testament period, people rested on the Sabbath day, but they didn't get together for worship in the towns. But that's not true. They did get together for worship and instruction all along. That's why there were Levites in every town in the Old Testament. That's why Acts chapter 15 and verse 21 says, For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. From ancient generations, Moses is read in the synagogues every Sabbath, and the law is preached. Now, scholars, both liberal and benighted conservatives, say that the synagogue was invented by Ezra and grew up just before the New Testament period began, but that's not so. It says right here in Leviticus 23 that there were to be worship services in the towns every Sabbath day. Now, as we consider the book of Haggai, we'll go into this. But in the Old Testament period, the prophetic duty of teaching the word and the priestly duty of rendering judgments were separated. And the prophetic duty of teaching the word was conducted in the synagogues every week and every new moon. But the priestly duty of rendering judgments was done at the temple according to the set pattern of the feasts. Now, in the New Testament age, the prophetic and priestly functions are put together so that we have both preaching and sacraments in local churches. But in the Old Testament, it was different. The sacraments were only in the temple, but the preaching was decentralized in the towns. Now it's all decentralized, you see. We'll look at that in more detail. I wanted to bring that up. And then in Leviticus 23, it goes on to talk, I'm pretty sure somewhere here, it talks about the new moons. Well, I don't see it right off the bat. But it doesn't really matter because we know from the history of Elisha that they did meet for worship on the new moons. And so what's happening here in Haggai chapter 1 is they're having a worship service on the new moon day. And the law of God has been read and Haggai is preaching. And at this point, the word of God comes in a special prophecy. The word of the Lord comes by the prophet on the new moon. We in our church observe the new moon by having a covered dish supper once a month. So to some extent, we still shadow these Old Testament practices. On the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel. 
Zerubbabel means born in Babylon. You can see Babel in his name. Babel, the Tower of Babel, or Babylon. Came to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, this message is addressed to church and state, to Zerubbabel, the king of the state, and to Joshua, the captain of the church. It's important to notice that. Later on in the book of Haggai, there is a special message only for the church. And then there's another special message only for Zerubbabel, only for the state. But here at this point, both church and state are addressed. Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Now let's look at that. First of all, the expression Lord of hosts. This expression Lord of hosts is used throughout the book of Haggai over and over again. Verse 5, now therefore thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts. And then we could look at chapter 2 and we see it over and over again. It's used preeminently in the post-exilic books, that is, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, expression Lord of hosts. Now, there's a theological reason for that. In order to understand this term Lord of hosts and what it means, we have to start in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Genesis 2.1 says, On the sixth day the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts on the sixth day or by the seventh day. And so the hosts are the angelic hosts and all the hosts of humanity and all the other armies or assemblies of living creatures which are organized around the throne of God and which serve his purposes. The first time the expression Lord of hosts shows up in the Bible is in 1 Samuel 1, verse 3. And that's where it says that the husband of Hannah would go up annually to worship the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Now, the reason it's mentioned that way is because there's a stress here on the Lord dwelling between or above the cherubim. And you see the two cherubim on either side of the ark represent the angelic host, the angelic armies of God whether that army or host is organized in worship or whether it's organized for battle. And the Lord is enthroned above this angelic host. They bear him up as they worship and glorify him. And so the reference there is to worship and to military might and protection. And we see this throughout the books of Samuel and Kings. For instance, in 2 Kings 6, Verse 17, 2 Kings 6:17. I'll just read these to you. Here's an example of the Lord of hosts. This is one of those times when the king of Syria had come up against Israel. And there's a vast army of Syrians out there. And Elisha's servant is afraid. Verse 15, Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. 
That is the heavenly host, the Lord of hosts with his army. You see, you don't have to worry about the Syrians because the Lord of hosts has got this big army of angels out there, and they're well able to take care of the Syrians, as they do in that chapter. In 2 Samuel 5, verse 24, there's an interesting reference to the Lord of hosts. 2 Samuel 5, 24, starting in verse 22. Now the Philistines came up once again and spread themselves out in the valley of Rephaim, valley of giants. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go directly up. Circle around behind them and come at them in front of the back of shrubs. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the back of shrubs, then you shall act promptly, for then the Lord will have gone out before you to strike the army of the Philistines. Well, what's the picture here? Well, the picture is of this angelic army marching through the air. And as they march, their feet rustle the tops of the trees. And so as God's army goes out before and the trees are all waving and being rustled, David's army is to follow behind. You see, you don't have to worry about the Philistines because the Lord of hosts has got this huge invisible army that he sends out to protect you. That's the meaning of the phrase, Lord of hosts. In 2 Kings 7... Verse 6, another reference to the angelic host. You'll remember the story. The city is surrounded, and the Syrians are out there, and there are four leprous men outside the city gates, and they decide, well, we're going to die anyway, so why not give ourselves up to the Syrians? And so it says in verse 5, They arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians, and when they were come to the outskirts of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was nobody there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even the sound of a great army. So they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Well, that wasn't actually so, was it? What they heard was the angelic army of the Lord of hosts. Now, it's very important to use the phrase Lord of hosts when you're just a teeny-weeny little itty-bitty band of people surrounded by all these vast pagan nations like Persia. You see, it's comforting. God could have called himself El Shaddai, God Almighty, or El Elyon, the Lord Most High, or any of these other names. But he uses the expression Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. And he does it to assure them of the fact that they have protection against all their enemies. Remember the context as we saw from Ezra. Here are all these Samaritans who are constantly trying to frighten them and prevent them from building the temple. And the phrase Lord of Armies assures them of his divine protection. Secondly, it calls attention to the fact that they need to build his temple because the hosts of the Lord are organized around the throne of God. You can read in the book of Revelation how this is so. The whole book of Revelation is a worship service laid out. And, of course, many things happen in that worship service. But just as Moses saw the pattern of worship on the mountain, so John is caught up into heaven and he sees the pattern of divine worship up there, especially in chapters 4 and 5. All the angels and living creatures and cherubim falling down around the throne of God. And that's the New Testament pattern for worship. And all these hosts are organized around the throne. And the throne becomes visible in our midst in the sacrament. That is the visible sign of the throne of God. So Christ's kingship is established in a culture when the sacraments have been established in that culture.
because that is the throne of God and the people gather around that throne for worship. This is why we have the Lord's Supper every time we worship here, every week. The Lord of hosts. And then there's a third meaning of the phrase Lord of hosts here. The first two were that the armies are there to protect you. The second, that you need to get serious about rebuilding the house of God and worship because the hosts need to be organized around the throne of God and the temple is the throne on the earth. And then third, the hosts are going to conquer the world. Now the book of Haggai makes that plain, but it's also made plain in Zechariah chapter 6. Zechariah prophesies at the same time Haggai does, just a few months later. And here's something about the Lord of hosts. You're worried about the fact that you're just a little itty-bitty church. How are you going to conquer the world? Well, it says in Zechariah 6, Now I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming forth from between the two mountains. The mountains were mountains of brass. With the first chariot were red horses, and with the second chariot black horses, and with the third chariot white horses, and with the fourth chariot strong dappled horses. And then I spoke and said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are the four winds of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth, with one of which the black horses are going forth to the north country. The white ones go forth after them, while the dappled ones go forth to the south country. When the strong ones went out, they were eager to go to patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried out and spoke to me, saying, See, those who were going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. Well, without trying to prove all this to you, verse 6 The black horses stand for economic disaster and they go north to Babylon and Babylon collapses in an economic disaster which is described in Revelation chapter 18. The merchants lament. And after them go the white horses which stand for conquest. And sent into the south country are the dappled horses and the dappled horses represent plague and plagues go to Egypt naturally. Economic disaster goes to Babylon and plagues go to Egypt. And these four horses are the four winds of heaven. Remember in the Garden of Eden there was a river that flowed out of Eden and went to the four corners of the earth. Same picture is used here. Out from the throne of God go the four winds, the four spirits or angelic forces. And they go to the four corners of the earth and conquer the world. That's the picture. Now that's what the phrase Lord of hosts means. You will conquer the world. And the book of Haggai ends with a statement that God is going to conquer the world. So all of this is being set up with this term, Lord of hosts, and its repetition throughout the book of Haggai. Thus says the Lord of hosts, you should be encouraged now, our God is the Lord of hosts. Don't worry about how small this church may be, or the fact that there are very few people who understand the Bible anymore these days. Time will come when we will conquer the world, if our God is the Lord of hosts. This people says the time has not come, even the time of the house of the Lord, to be rebuilt. may not strike you as such a terrible insult, but he doesn't say my people says. He says this people says. What's happened? I thought they were his people, but he refers to them as this people. The reason is very simple. God's people are those who are organized in his house around his throne. But because they haven't built the house of God and don't seem motivated to do so, they can't be called his people. 
They're just like the pagans. Pagans don't care about building the house of God. They don't come and organize themselves around the throne of God. They don't bow down and join with the angels and the cherubim and the four living creatures and the 24 elders. They don't join with them in worshiping the God of heaven and earth. They're not part of his host. They don't care about the house of God, which is a house of prayer. They don't care about worship. And neither do these people. Their priorities are wrong. And so they're just like the pagans. They claim to be God's people, but they don't have their priorities straight. And so he jars them by referring to them as this people, an undefined mass of people. How are God's people defined? They're defined as those who gather around the throne of God for worship. That's how God's people are defined. That's how you set up a class or a category and say who the people of God are. They're the people who are baptized and who draw into his presence to worship him and who are under the discipline and government of the church. That's who God's people are and who live up to the profession that they make in their baptism, who live up to the claim that God puts upon them in their baptism. That's how you define them. And that's who my people are, says the Lord. But this people is an undefined mass because the house of God has not been built, because they're not living like the people of God. An undefined anarchistic mass of people, each going its own way, without a center and without a definition. So they can't be called my people. They can only be called this people. That's the situation of the church in America today. Christians are simply a this people. They don't have definition because they don't have worship as their primary activity. This people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. What's being said here? Well, during the 17-year period in which they were not allowed to build the house of the Lord, they turned their attention to other tasks, which we would consider perfectly valid cultural mandate tasks, building up their local businesses, getting their houses built, getting their lives shaped up in terms of prosperity and enjoying the good things that God had to give them. But they neglected the first work, which is worship. Now, how do I know that? Some people say, well, what is the house of God? Well, you know from Matthew 21:13, my house shall be called a house of theocratic government. No, my house shall be called a house of prayer. When God went to war with Pharaoh, what did he say? What did Moses go into Pharaoh's court and say? Let us go three days into the wilderness to form a theocracy. No, let us go three days in the wilderness to worship our God. Worship is the foundation of everything else. We're going to develop this as we go through the book of Haggai. Everything flows out of worship and flows back into worship. God gives us a prophetic word and tells us to go out and perform a kingly task, and then he comes with a priestly evaluation. Our whole life is structured in worship and flows out from the throne of God, and then we come back to the throne of God in worship with what we have built, consecrating our works to him. We consecrate ourselves, perform our works, and then bring our works to him. That's the way the rhythm of our life is to be organized, in and out. The people, however, have forgotten that fact. And they have put all their money and their capital investment into building their paneled houses. Is something wrong with paneled houses? You know, we all know people who say Christians ought not to enjoy the good life. 
Christians ought not to live in nice houses or drive nice cars. No, I think we all here in this church know better than that. Hopefully, we've gotten past that type of superstition. The blessings of the covenant are for the people of God. But the point here is, they aren't enjoying the blessings of the covenant. Consider your ways, it says in verse 5. You've sown much, but harvest little. So they're the people of God, but they're not enjoying the blessings of the covenant. You've sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. Well, what do you know? Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that, you know, life isn't going all that well, and so you might want to get drunk and forget your troubles. But you don't even have enough booze to do that. There's not even enough to get drunk and forget your troubles. I don't think the Bible is approving drunkenness here. It's just using this as an example of how little they have. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. It does get cold at night in Palestine, especially up on those mountains. And Zion is a high mountain. They were living on Mount Zion. He who earns, earns wages to put in a purse with holes in it. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. No, it's not natural law. It's not some economic international crisis which is causing you to be impoverished. It's not because gold has gone down or up. It's not because the Bilderberger group has meddled with the economy and messed everything up. No, it's not because of any of that type of stuff. It's because I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. Priorities are wrong. It's not wrong to have a nice house. It's wrong to have it when your priorities are wrong. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. Most of us aren't farmers, but you realize that during the night, the dew settles down and makes the earth nice and moist. But if you don't have enough dew, the sun comes and scorches the ground. Plants don't grow. So the burning of the sun is destroying the crops because there isn't enough moisture on the ground during the night. The dew hasn't settled. And I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Not much left out there. Things are bad. So that's the word. The word is, get your priorities straight. First things first. Worship the house of God is first. Now, in the New Covenant age, we're not talking so much about building a beautiful building, but we are talking about something besides evangelism and personal discipleship. You see, this is spiritualized falsely to mean that building the house of God means going out and winning souls and then discipling those souls into strong Christian individualistic characters. Well, there's nothing wrong with any of that. But when the Bible talks about building the house of God, it means something other than that. It means organizing a community around the sacrament, which is the visible throne of God, the visible manifestation of the presence of Christ as he rules the earth. That's what it means. And it has to do with reconstructing special worship and rebuilding the church. You see, in some senses, we would say the family is central to civilization, and that's true. And in some senses, we would have to say that the state is central to civilization because it restrains evil, and that's true. But there's a sense also in which the church is central to civilization because it's in the church that the word of God is set out and the throne of God is glorified and held up and exalted. The Lord is enthroned above the cherubim and held up and made visible as a banner. 
And we are cherubim if we're in the host of God. Not literally, but we join that host and we also enthrone him. He's enthroned above his people. And unless he's made visible in the world, in worship and through us, then there simply isn't going to be any change. And that's why worship is the first work of the church. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. How encouraging they did what they were told, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared before the Lord. Now, your translation may say something different, but the expression fear before the Lord means they engaged in special worship. That's what it means. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you is Emmanuel, God with us. That's the basic blessing in the covenant. God with us, Emmanuel. And that's true of us. You see, God is in our midst, specially present in his sacrament, generally present with us all the time. God with us, Emmanuel, in our midst and with each one of us individually. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. They came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month of the second year of Darius the king. Two comments here. One, when the Bible refers to the spirit of a man, it does so in reference to the Holy Spirit, who stirs up our spirit. People say, well, is there a human spirit? You know, we have a soul and a spirit and a heart and reins and mind. All these different sections of the person. People read the Bible that way and read it falsely. The reference here really is to the Holy Spirit who stirs up the spirit of a man. And we'll look back next time in Exodus and we'll find that when the house of God was built in the Exodus, it was built by the Spirit stirring up the people. And then it says in verse 15, they began to work on the house of God on the 24th day of the sixth month. Now the prophecy came on the first day, and so the question is, how come they waited till the 24th day to get to work? Well, two reasons. One, they really were right in the middle of the harvest, and God doesn't expect us to act foolishly, but judiciously. God didn't say to them, drop everything, don't harvest your crops, let the harvest rot, and start working on the temple. No, he said, commit yourselves to start working on the temple and work on it as soon as you get a chance. And that's what they did. God's commands don't go against other commands. They were, of course, to harvest their crops and bring in the tithe. But then having done that, and having taken the time to go up to the mountains and gather the wood and the raw materials, they began work on the house of God on the 24th day of the sixth month. Here ends the first chapter of Haggai. Next week we'll consider chapter 2, or at least begin to consider it. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.